Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK Magazine and JCK Online. Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski are excited about their publications that are hitting the sands today. They'll also cover LVMH and Tiffany, social commerce, and a weird jewelry story of the week. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and JCK Online. And you're back in the city, right, Rob? Yes, I'm back in New York. I'm back in the New York groove. And is it feeling good? Does the city have a good vibe? I really miss it. You know, it's different. I mean, there's not the kind of nightlife that there was before, they're just the kind of general activity, but... Yeah, people are out and about and they're wearing masks and it's not completely the same, but it's nice and the energy is still there. And, you know, unfortunately, there's been a little bit of a spike, but we're hopeful it's going to calm down and people will be good. Yeah, I really miss it. So this day, October 13th, is a very big day for you, Rob. Ah, Yes. Very, very excited for you and excited for our audience to hear about what's coming out today. You've got a book coming out today. Yes, it's a mystery novel based on the diamond industry, because apparently that's the only thing I'm capable of writing about. It's kind of your standard mystery novels. It's meant for people who like a certain kind of mystery. So you've missed the key detail here. What is it called? Because the name is great. Oh, so the name of the book is A Murder is Forever. And it's the Diamond District Mystery Series. And the second book, which I'm finishing up now, is going to be called Murder is Not a Girl's Best Friend. <laughs> I'm supposed to write three. So I'm still figuring out what the third one will be. But the first two, I think we're, we're good. It follows a lot of the kind of genre conventions of a quote-unquote cozy mystery in that it's about an amateur detective who deals with a certain group of people all the time. And again, it's very lighthearted and meant to be fun. And I hope people will take it in that spirit. I'm excited and nervous, as always. It's available via paperback and ebook, correct? Paperback and ebook. You look on Goodreads and you can see all the places where it's sold. It's on a bunch of different places and... Some people have asked for autographs. I'm not exactly sure what the what the value of my autograph would be on that book. But anyway, I'm excited about it and it's fun. And uh, it took me like five or six years to write. And, you know, this is before your time, but there used to be a guy who worked for us, Jonathan Harrington, who wrote a bunch of mystery novels. And he actually wrote one that involved diamonds and I helped him out a lot with it. And I'm actually a character in the book. Oh, my God. I love it. Yeah. So and that kind of gave me the idea. And I always thought, you know, that I would do it. And it got a nice write up in Publishers Weekly, which is, I think, pretty cool. That's huge. Yeah. So um, we'll just have to see. I'm uh, not quitting my day job. Yeah. Well, October 13th. Great big day. There you go. And I believe there's another exciting story breaking that day, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken, in the newspaper of record. It's a story by you on 100 years of wristwatches. So that's a huge topic, right? Is this a huge feature or? You know what? For the times, it is. It's about 3,300 words. So normally my stories when I write for the times, you know, 1,000 words, 1,200 words. So this is definitely big. It's a cover story for a watch section that's printed internationally. You know, these are the sections I've written for for years now, going back almost 15 years for these luxury sections. And I had just done that Art Deco piece for the Times, and I was sort of in that mind of looking back 100 years. And I thought to myself, oh, well, you know, it's not that the wristwatch was invented technically in 1920, but 1920 really marks about the time when soldiers returning from World War I popularized the style. 
a lot of people know this in our industry, but wristwatches circa 1920 were still largely considered feminine objects. They first came to the fore in the later half of the 19th century as wristlets. They were for women who were so well-to-do who didn't really need to know the time. They didn't need to be anywhere. So they were status symbols for women. And so a lot of men really disdained them. They were feminine. They were almost like skirts. But when men returned from the war wearing wristwatches, because in a trench, how are you going to be fumbling with your pocket watch? How are you going to be trying to time your artillery? You can't. So you really need that wristwatch. So when men came back from the war around 1920, that's when the wristwatch took off. So my piece, what I wanted to look at was 10 developments or milestones that shifted the way we understand and value timekeeping. And I went through the years and ended out, of course, with the Apple Watch. And the one thing that surprised me is, you know, when you think about the 80s in the world of Swiss watches and the world of watches in general, there are a few milestones that come up. But the 80s are still often looked at as the dark ages for the Swiss you know, this time when people didn't know what to do. And yet so much of what our current industry and the current watch business is driven by was seeded in the 80s. The ideas that were being formed then really are responsible for the multi, multi-billion dollar industry we have today. I've kind of been drawn to looking at the 80s a little bit more than I would have. 1983, Jean-Claude Biver really brought Blancpain to the fore. And he's become, you know, the marketing genius we all look to for how to sell and market wristwatches. So I interviewed a Harvard professor who's made a whole case study and has been teaching the Biver case study to Harvard Business School students since 2014. I mean, that's a big deal. They're drawn to him because he represents this poignant and meaningful example of how to bring an industry back from the dead. You know, it's interesting. I just kind of know him as this larger than life personality. But what kind of interior skills or what kind of marketing savvy do you think that he had that was so instrumental in bringing the industry back? Actually, I spoke to him for the piece and I actually asked him what it is that he did differently. And he talked about letting them fail, you know, that failure was an important part of what you do for your team. You let them fail. You don't let them fail twice. You let them fail once. And that's a critical part of how they learn. And you share, actually. That was another pivotal point of his philosophy was that you share your successes and you share your own failures. It was a fun thing to research and to learn about because a lot of people know this, but more people don't know this, you know? When you talked about what happened in the 80s and how the germs of the current industry were built then, is there anything in particular that kind of reflected the change of mindset? Yes. I mean, a lot of things, because I think a lot of things were coming to the fore. But one thing in 1985, it's AHCI. It's basically the Academy of Independent Watchmaking. They formed. You had independent watchmakers back in the 18th and 19th century. Abraham Louis Begay, John Harrison, these, you know, pillars of historic watchmaking. And then, you know, they were subsumed over the years and into the 20th century by brands and by big luxury groups. And that idea of that independent maker coming to the fore and creating works of art really was revived in the 80s. So that was interesting. Also, one thing I didn't realize, and I have to give credit to Stephen Pulverin of Hodinkee, who I spoke to, it was around 85 when watches started to feature transparent case backs. And that doesn't seem like a big deal. But before then, these case backs were closed and there was no sense of what was happening inside the watch. 
But around 85, Pytech Philippe, for example, started producing transparent case backs. And suddenly you can show your watch to your friend who knows nothing about watches. And suddenly they're like, wow. And also automation, because before 85, most pieces were made by hand. And after 85, we started to see CAD and CNC machinery and all kinds of automation step in. And, you know, for better or worse, a lot of people decry the, the loss of that handmade quality that gives pieces a, a soul. But, you know, it certainly allowed the industry to speed up its production and start to produce in a way that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, and I'm just looking at right now a story on NPR Marketplace that ran, I think, a couple of days ago. It says, pandemic is giving the luxury watch market its moment. Huh. And it talks about how, you know, a lot of people who are bored and sitting at home and looking to spend money are spending it on watches. They said exports of watches costing more than $3,000 are back to where they were last year. Yeah, I think there's you know, a lot to say about the world of watches. So, you know, it's just fun to learn. So basically on October 13th, people are going to have a lot to read. <laughs> Don't do any work. Just read my book and her article and you'll learn so much. If you're a fan of podcasts, you know that listener reviews help make them possible. Please rate, review, and subscribe to The Jewelry District wherever you may listen. And now, back to the show. Well, what else is happening in the world of actual jewelry news? I guess the big news, and it's it's crazy, is this whole LVMH Tiffany breakup or maybe breakup. You know, it's one of those things that possibly could change by even the time this comes out. But it was a big deal last year. LVMH said they approached Tiffany on their own, you know, without being invited, said we would like to buy you out. And Tiffany has always been kind of this very proud company that rebuffed advances and said we want to be on our own. We want to be independent. But LVMH, which is the biggest luxury conglomerate in the world, made them a big offer, offered to buy them for, I think, final total of $16.2 And it was the largest deal ever done in the luxury space. So it was like a huge deal. And a lot of people were wondering what would happen to Tiffany, you know, what LVMH would do with it. And, you know, it seemed like everybody was excited about the deal. I was actually one of the few people in print who said I wasn't sure if it was such a good idea, but just about like every other human being who wrote something thought it was a great deal. And then all of a sudden, you know, the pandemic hit and it seemed that LVMH was getting cold feet and they just seemed very eager to back out. And then I guess in August or September, they got a letter from the French government said because of this trade war France is having with the Trump administration, we're asking you to delay the closing of the deal. So from LVMH's standpoint, that means that the deal should be called off. It subsequently has come out that Bernard Arnault, who's the head of LVMH, possibly may have asked the French government for this letter. Wow. And it's not 100% clear, and there's a lot of different theories, but it certainly seems that LVMH either wants to get a lower price or just get out of the deal altogether because they're also suggesting that because of the pandemic, Tiffany is no longer such an attractive property for them. So right now they're in court and suing each other. And what's odd to me is that Tiffany is actually suing to get LVMH to be held to this $16 billion deal, which from everything I understand, they have a pretty good case for and that Delaware courts may actually be very receptive towards. That said, you know, if somebody doesn't want to take you over, 
you were doing okay on your own. I mean, you never asked for anybody to take you over. I mean, if this guy is getting cold feet, he's not going to be a good owner. Like, just wash your hands of it. I don't understand why they're trying to ram this deal through. From what I understand, I don't think LVMH has acted particularly honorably during this whole thing. I think they've been very deceitful. And um, Arno is his nickname is quote unquote the wolf in cashmere. And I'm certainly getting a better sense of why that is. And you were remind us why you initially didn't think it was a great idea anyway. I think it's good from an industry perspective to have more diverse companies, diverse owners. I just think you get better ideas than when everything is kind of homogenous under one umbrella. I think Tiffany was doing okay on its own and it didn't necessarily need the owner. So what did LVMH necessarily bring? Now, what's interesting is that this pandemic kind of illustrates why it's good to have a big corporate owner because you have that kind of solid financial backing just in case something terrible like this happens. But the irony is now that this terrible thing has happened, LVMH says, okay, we don't want to be your safety net. You know, we're not that interested. So I don't think everything needs to be under a luxury umbrella. I mean, LVMH has tried to get Hermes. I mean, they tried to get everything. And it's just, it's nice to have certain companies with different cultures competing against each other instead of all under this kind of big rubric. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I don't want to see everything owned by three luxury groups. As a consumer, it feels like this monolithic luxury wall that you can't really surmount or, you know, or smaller designers can't compete with smaller companies. When might this be resolved? I don't know. I mean, I think the conventional wisdom is that if Tiffany says, okay, you know what, you can take it for 14 billion, then he might say, okay, he's just trying to save a little money on this whole thing. That's the reason for this. Otherwise, we'll see. I mean, it's working its way through the courts. The hearing is going to be in January. These things tend to take a while. Yeah. So I I think it's one of those things that if I had to bet, I would bet it's going to go through in some form, either you know, at a cheaper price or by the courts forcing it to. Personally, I think maybe it's time for the two uh, former lovebirds to call it a day. Yeah. COVID breakup. Another one. All right. Well, thanks for the update. So Vic, I, I know you're doing a webinar tomorrow. Yes, I'm actually, I am doing a webinar tomorrow on the 14th, Wednesday, and it's a webinar for JCK on the 2020 holiday, seven ways it'll be different and what retailers should do about it. And in the research for the webinar, you know, I'm sitting here thinking about all the ways it's going to be different. Obviously, there's going to be a lot fewer events, a lot more careful appointments and Zoom consultations and things like that. I hope that retailers are already reaching out to clients about. But one thing that came up in my research, I'd sat in on a social commerce webinar. And, you know, when you first hear that term, you think, okay, well, that's shopping on Instagram. And when I sat through this webinar, I guess that's the very most basic understanding of it. But Basically, they said e-commerce has been growing very, very substantially in the last 10 years or so, but it's not optimized for shopping, which is experiential and fun. It's optimized for transactions, for buying. And what they basically described, when you shop, when you go into a store, you're drawn over to this display or that display, and you stumble on this particular piece of clothing or that home good, and it's discovering. It's a process of discovery that's fun. It's unexpected. You see things you wouldn't have otherwise looked for. You didn't even know you wanted. And that's what's hard to replicate in the online environment. So ways that retailers are surmounting that and trying to build a sense of discovery into the online shopping process is through social commerce. 
it's a lot more than just stopping on Instagram. It's basically scrolling and incorporating all that content that you see on people's social channels into a retail e-commerce space. One example of that is Neiman Marcus. You go to neimanmarcus.com slash editorial and you see stories on Fashion Week, on special occasion styles, and they all say read plus shop the story. So it's this way of integrating content and e-commerce in one so that people are reading something fun that might catch their eye, but then being inspired by it to actually purchase. I mean, there's different companies doing all kinds of things. So I think we should just all have our ears perked for innovations in that space because it's going to be a lot more than just transactions that build out our experience of shopping online. Yeah. And from what I understand, one of the more powerful sales tools that Amazon has is when they say people who look for this also bought this. That's incredibly powerful for people. And that's a huge driver of sales. Right. And check out what other people are thinking because, you know, we can all tap into what fellow consumers are thinking and doing. So I think there's a lot to go here and a lot of innovative ideas and we'll see how it goes. But 2021, I think, is certainly going to be the year where anybody who hasn't taken that next step with their e-commerce operation will need to. And is I'm sure thinking of ways to do that now. So as retailers, as jewelers out there, this is your growth right here, you know? I mean, be sure to build out that social and that online space for all the growth. And then you can tap into communities that are well beyond your borders, well beyond your, your region. And Instagram is perfect for jewelry because it is so visual. Yeah, seriously. Those people who are insomniacs, how do people placate their insomnia in the middle of the night? They shop online, on Insta, on wherever. So give them good feel-good moments and fun stories to go down rabbit holes, and I think you might be rewarded. Yeah, sounds cool. Um, we have a weird story, I'm told. Yes, we have a weird story of the week. This is from 2fab.com. Carl Richards, do you know who she is? That sounds really familiar. She's one of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. Oh. She's a Real Housewife, and she was on Little House on the Prairie, and she was in something called The Hangover Games. She was in Halloween. She's, anyway, so she's a Real Housewife. So on the recent Secret Revealed episode of The Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, Kyle Richards revealed a wild new twist in the search for her stolen jewelry. Now, she had lost over a million dollars in personal items oh, in wow. 2017 when her home was robbed. And actually, this kind of fits in well with the story we just had. So Richards actually ran across one of her missing pieces in the most random places. Hmm. She was scrolling on Instagram and she saw one of the pieces on the Instagram page of Diane Keaton. What? Wild. And it's such like a random celebrity, too. Yeah. I had the craziest thing happen. She said, I was looking on Instagram and Diane Keaton posted a picture of a psychic's hands and they had my ring on her hand. And apparently Keaton had noticed a sidewalk fortune teller on the Third Street Promenade in Santa Monica. Mm -hmm. And she took a picture of the woman's hands because she thought the nails were so interesting. Kyle actually hired a private investigator to find the woman and then went undercover to the promenade to see if she could locate her too. However, since she was busy filming The Real Housewives, she didn't have time to focus on the investigation as much as she would like. But she says, I do want to pick that up again because I want to know if the fortune teller bought that from someone at a porn shop. Even if I have to buy it back from her, I'd be happy to do that. 
do we know if she found the fortune teller or she just... no she hasn't found she has not found no huh so it's just kind of like a weird random thing that's pretty nuts that is, yeah it's kind of like i mean first of all it's like of all the instagram feeds in the world she just happened to see that one she just happened to follow diane keaton and <laughs> diane keaton just happened to take a picture of that woman and her nails and her ring was on that so Non-stop drama of, of the Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. So wherever that woman is, the fortune teller and Diane Keaton and Kyle Richards, I hope they all... I used to work on the promenade, so I feel like it's my old stomping ground. I should go and see if I can find her. Next time I wander. Yeah, you should go undercover. Maybe you can sell it back. Exactly. There you go. You can be the P.I. I've always thought being a P.I. sounded like a really fun second career, third career. This could be the basis of my of my third book. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Olivia Briley. If you like what you've heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK. 